Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 50. Now, uh, at this point, as we uh, finish up the life of Joseph, everything's looking good, right? So Joseph is uh, second in command in Egypt. He's a big shot there. He's like uh, nobody does anything unless he tells them they can. He's got his own limo, somebody clearing traffic out of the way. Um, he's, he's got, you know, his brothers are now living there. His dad has come to live with him, the whole family. They're prospering. They've, you know, they got the famine beat, and everything's looking good. But it's like one of these situations that I think you and I uh, go through where if somebody was looking from the outside at our lives, they'd go like, yeah, yeah, things are... Things are good. They got it. They got it great. I wish I had a life like theirs. But inside, there's a lot of anxiety. There's like worry. There's fear. Um, there's there's a lot of like, who can I trust? Kind of stuff going on. And I think that's uh, what's going on here in uh, Genesis 50. And um, the first trust issue that kind of surfaces is this whole idea of like, my boss and my coworkers. And I'd like you to take you to Genesis 50 verse 4 here, because uh, Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, has died. He lived to be a, to a ripe old age, so he's, he's died. And it said, when the period of mourning was over, Joseph approached Pharaoh's advisors and said, please do me this favor and speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. Tell him that my father made me swear an oath. He said to me, listen, I'm about to die. Take my body back to the land of Canaan and bury me in the tomb I prepared for myself. So please allow me to go and bury my father. After his burial, I will return without delay. Now, this is kind of weird. When I was reading this, I thought, wait a minute. Joseph is the guy who's like vice president. He's, he's like uh, Pharaoh's going like, look, at, I'm delegating my authority to you. You're the boss. Why doesn't he just say, hey, Pharaoh, uh, I got to go bury my father. I promised him I would do it, so I'll see you in, in you know, a couple of months because it takes a while to get up there and do all that stuff, and then I'll be back. But he, he kind of goes about it roundabout, doesn't he? So he goes to uh, Pharaoh's advisors and he goes, hey, put in a good word for me. What's going on here? You know, and then this continues. Uh, Pharaoh agreed to Joseph's request. Go and bury your father as, you, as he made you promise, he said. So Joseph went to bury his father. He was accompanied by all of Pharaoh's officials, all the senior members of Pharaoh's household, all the senior officers of Egypt. Joseph also took his entire household and his brothers and their households, but they left their little children in flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. A great number of chariots and charioteers accompanied Joseph. So he leaves his kids back there and all their stuff. What's going on here? You know, I think Joseph's a smart guy, you know, and I think he's thinking here, you know, Pharaoh is, uh, he's not my dad. You know, this isn't family, this is my job. And Pharaoh knows that Joseph is top-rate talent. And I think he was, you know, he, Joseph's thinking here, Pharaoh's going to think if I leave, you know, I may be taking a job someplace else. I mean, I'm desirable talent, and he'll, he kind of wants me to stay, and so he's not going to be real happy that I'm going. And I think the deal here is that Joseph knew the difference between a workplace and a family. You know, that's something that uh, we're losing sight of in our culture. You know what I mean? I don't know if any of you work at places where they kind of like 
pitch you the idea, hey, we're a family here. We're a family here at this job. That's kind of manipulative if you think about it, you know? Um, and what that does, and, you know, we're living in a time where they go, like, you know what, why don't you just stay home, you know, work uh, online, and we'll do that kind of thing. And that's kind of a danger, isn't it? Because there the workplace begins to bleed into the family, doesn't it? And pretty soon there's less family and there's more work. And like you're on call 24 hours a day and the expectations become so great. And you know, if, if, work, if your workplace is your family and you want to quit and go someplace else, you're going to feel guilty. It'll be like walking away from your family. You know, that kind of stuff. And so you, and then you get the, the thing that people go like, you know what, my workplace was like my family and then I quit, but nobody's calling me. You know, nobody seems to care. It's like, and they're like surprised. Hey, duh, this is not your family. You know, that's, that's a problem. I don't know if any of you ever saw this movie, uh, Jerry Maguire. I also saw this Tom Cruise's best movie. And he plays this like sports agent there. They're taking care of athletes, you know, and they're going like, you know what, uh, we're going to represent you to your teams and stuff. And he becomes convinced after a while. He's going, we're not giving these guys the time that they need. We're just kind of you know, using them and moving on to the next guy. And he talks about it with his co-workers that he thinks of as family at this company. He goes like, you know what, we got to do this better, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, we're totally behind you here. So he goes to the boss and he goes like, you know what, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to spend more time with each individual person, give them the attention they need, but I won't be able to service as many clients. And the boss goes, guess what, you're fired. And so then Jerry goes like, okay, here's his family, right, that he's working with. Who's coming with me? Nobody. They're all going like, who are you? <laughs> you know, we got a job here. We're not going to lay down our job for you, right? And even after he leaves, they uh, work against him to try to keep him from getting clients and stuff like that because they're, they're company boys. You know, uh, Netflix, um, Reed Hastings, their CEO, who's kind of famous in the business world, you know, and infamous, I guess, at this particular time. But when he had this, like, statement in their slide deck that they presented to their people, and it kind of states what, what really it's like in the real world, right? He says, we're a team, not a family. We're like a pro sports team, not a kid's recreational team. Netflix leaders hire, develop, and cut smartly so we have stars in every position you know what he's saying there he's going if you're not the best that we can get in your position we're going to try to get that best guy and we're going to whack you you know and so it's that's uh he's going like look at let's be realistic about this you know and i remember i read something where this guy goes you know um you know imagine coming to your junior high school daughter you go like, you know, we're sorry, Susie, but your mom and I have decided you're just not a good fit. Your table-setting effort has been deteriorating for the past six months, and your obsession with ponies just isn't adding any value. We're going to have to let you go, but don't take it the wrong way. It's just family. So Joseph is a smart guy, and I think you and I need to start realizing this too, you know, because in our world, our careers have become something that just over, have become, started to overwhelm us. And they've become almost like a, a little god in our lives sometimes, haven't they? Where we, we measure ourselves based on how we're doing in our jobs, whether things are going right, or, or, you know, well or not well. 
And hey, that isn't what it's really all about ultimately, is it? Nor can we put our trust in our coworkers or our boss. Well, if that isn't the deal, then what about family? And you can see in this particular um, chapter, there's problems with family too. And so let's, let's go on. It says, after burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. You know, family, you know, we'd wish we could trust them, right? This is uh, uh, some of Nelson Mandela's kids. Um, Nelson Mandela was this awesome leader in South Africa. You know what was weird? Was he died in 2013, and while he was still fighting for his life against cancer in the hospital, his ex-wife and his relatives were already battling for his estate, fighting over who was going to get more of what he was going to leave behind. And that battle has continued to this day. I mean, he's been dead now for seven years. They're still in court battling each other over various issues like this. And it, it's like, and this doesn't happen just to big shot families like Nelson Mandela's. It happens to little shot families like ours. That families, you'd expect them to, you know, you know, in times of crisis, they would come together. When, you know, a loved one dies, you'd think they'd all like be consoling each other. But what happens so many times, especially if there's money involved, people are going like, I want my cut. You're getting too much, you know. And it just, you're like, whoa, what's, what's happening here? What's happening here? And, you know, if we're, we're putting our trust in our family, it's going to, we're going to find ourselves disappointed. And Joseph's brothers are like, well, can we trust Joseph? I mean, we've wronged him. We got it coming from him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we're your slaves, they said. Do you understand what's going on behind the scenes here? They're not only like worried because they've done him wrong, but they're also worried because of what? Because he's a powerful man. He's the second most powerful guy in Egypt, which is a dominant country in the world. And they're going like, whoa, people who are in power people who've got some power, look out, look out. Joseph's brothers, I think, recognize the perils of trusting politically powerful people. You know, here's another one of the things that's so easy to fall prey to is that we start to go like, you know what, let's trust the people who are our, our leaders. You know, these guys have the answers. Maybe they got the answers. Maybe this guy here, maybe that guy there, and we're going like, He'll, you know, this person will bail us out. She'll take care of us kind of thing. Um, I read this book recently called Promise Me You'll Shoot Yourself. It's about the, the rash, the mass suicides that took place in Germany at the end of World War II in 1945. Thousands, literally thousands of people killed themselves. And uh, they, in that book, they mentioned this poem written by Gerhard Huffman, a German citizen. In 1933, when Hitler was coming to power. So many people were looking to him as, okay, this guy's got the answers now. And he wrote this poem about Hitler called The Savior, and he says, I've become a child again, trusting, helpless, and silent. 
Germany bleeds from a thousand wounds. At the eleventh hour, I have at last found a savior. Twelve years later, Gerhard Huffman killed himself. He realized what a fool he had been to put his trust in a political leader. You know, um, but this, and there's just like tragedy after tragedy that occurs when we do that. Here's just an extreme example. Uh, the guy in the picture there is Zhang Hongbing. Um, he's got a picture there in his hand, and that's a picture of his mom. He's been carrying around that photo for 40 years because he carries the guilt of having caused her death. And this, this is what happened. Uh, when Zhang was 16 years old, um, he was a member of the Red Guard, you know, devoted to Mao Zedong. And one night at the supper table, his mother and his father and he were sitting there, and his uh, mother said, you know, I think we would have been better off if Mao had not been our leader. I mean, this is after millions, literally millions of people have died because of his stupid plans and the evil stuff he did. I mean, let's face it, the guy was a mass murderer, if you get right down to it. I mean, China had suffered so much at his hands, even though everybody was like, oh, Mao. And she said, you know, maybe we would have been better off without him as a leader. And uh, Zhang, 16 years old, he goes, how dare you speak against the leader? And she said, son, you didn't go through the Cultural Revolution. Now, the Cultural Revolution was this time where the, there were all these like mass protests and stuff. They were tearing down statues. They were um, just demonstrating against what had happened in the past. Books were being, were being burned. Um, people, you know, they were looking up what people had said in the past, and any politically incorrect statements would lead to them being dismissed from their jobs. It was a, just a terrible time of unrest in China that just upset the whole country. And she said, child, you don't remember that. And her son stood up and he said, who is your child here? We are the Red Guard of Mao Zedong. If you go spewing poison, I'll smash your dog's skull. His mom was so incensed, she went to the wall and took the poster of Mao down and burned it. At which, when that happened, her husband, Zhang's father, stood up and he said, you are an irredeemable, talking to uh, his wife, you are an irredeemable counter-revolutionary, and from now on, you are not a member of this family. You are the enemy. We will fight you. And he and his son marched down to the police station, turned her in for the crime of tearing down and burning a poster, you know, a picture of Mao. She w the police came, bound her, hauled her away, and shot her, killed her. And Jang's been carrying around that picture for 40 years because of the guilt that he still feels for what he did. You know, in like putting his trust in a political leader. Uh, but yet today, in China, we've got another, I mean, just to use this country as an example here, another guy's risen up, uh, you know, Xi Jinping, and uh, this is one of his statements. This guy was like a, a, a lower-level party official who rose to power because he had no enemies. They thought, okay, this guy will be all right. As soon as he got power, he efficiently eliminated all his enemies, and now he's like the supreme totalitarian ruler there. And he, he said this about himself. He said, just as a plum blossom did not need anyone to shower it with praise and was content that the universe was filled with its scent, I don't need cheap compliments from anyone. It's enough that my integrity fills the universe. Do you know that this particular app right here is the most popular app in the world? Literally, Hundreds of millions of people 
have downloaded this app. And with this app, this is, all this is is the speeches and the thoughts of Xi Jinping. And it, the, the Communist Party government monitors the time that people spent on, spend on this, and for every half hour that you spend on it, you get social credit points, which means that in China you are entitled to more privileges or fewer of your rights are taken away. You have more job opportunities, more advancement in your job. And if you actually listen to this thing between 6 and 8.30 a.m. or after 8 p.m. at night, you get double points, okay? And so people are just... You know, and so Joseph's brothers, they're dealing, they're going like, whoa, we got a brother who's got this power. What's this going to do? Is this going to go to his head now? And then he's going to like come after us for what we have done? You know, the Bible warns us against this. It says here in Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord your God. You know, and you might say to yourself, well, you know, we don't have, that's not going to be a big risk in our country because we don't like our leaders. You know, I mean, both the guys who are running for president have negative popularity ratings higher than their, popul than their popularity, their positive popularity ratings, you know. But at the same time, you know, what do we do as Christians when we're dealing with, like, even voting? And I'll give you my take on this, on, this on, election, on the elections. You know, I think as a Christian man, what I need to be doing here is not looking for who's got the answers, not putting my trust in anybody or anybody's program. But instead, when I vote, you know what I have to do, I think? I need to vote for the lesser of two evils. And I think that's, been my, that's my position in, in every in every election. I mean, even if Abraham Lincoln was running against George Washington, I wouldn't say, oh, I'm going to put my trust in this guy or that guy or believe that. You know, I'm going to vote based on who's, who do I think is going to do the least amount of damage? You know, now you're saying, why are you so cynical about this? For two reasons. One, the Bible says, don't put your trust in princes. Don't, these guys are overrated. You know, understand that. Secondly, I know human nature. You know, I have actually seen three-year-olds in action, and I know that people are not, you know, born good. You know what I'm saying? I teach high school students. People are not basically good. And so to put our trust in people who are flawed, which is you and which is me, is like a very foolish thing to do. Now, I noticed this on the Babylon Bee. They said, Libertarian Party reminds Americans they can actually choose lesser of three evils, you know. So I suppose, you know, we don't have to limit it to just two. But you understand what I'm trying to say is it would be foolish to put our trust in people. Now, then the question is, how do you appeal to a guy like Joseph? Now, I, I want you to understand something. We always think of Joseph as like the nicest guy in the entire world. Uh, not exactly, Okay. Now, okay, let's, let's give him his credit. This guy is totally into justice. He's a straight-shooting guy, and he's into justice. But like many people who really have a priority of justice, he lacks compassion. And you can see that a couple of times in his story. Remember that part where the guy, the baker, came in and he, to him when he was in prison? I had this dream. These birds ate all this bread that was on my head. Joseph goes, hey, you know what that means? Three baskets, it means three days they're going to hang you. You're going to be dead. 
I mean, the guy was just like tactless, you know, for one thing. A straight shooter, but he wasn't a real like sensitive guy all the time. But here's the thing that kind of that gets me. So what does Joseph do? He's got this plan for Egypt, right? There's going to be seven years of good, seven years of famine. So during the seven years of good, what does he do? He taxes the grain from the farmers. So he confiscates their stuff, takes it. Now, they're eating still, right? But he's taking whatever they got left, and he stores it away in the barns, right? Then the famine comes. What does Joseph do? He sells it back to them. It's their grain. He's going, now, you've got to buy it. So he, he buys all their grain. Then they run out of money. So he goes, like, well, you're going to have to give me your land. And it says in Genesis that by the time it was done, the government owned all the land. They had taken all the land from all the people. It was a country that has, had you know, private enterprise uh, farmers like this, but now it was all owned, and they had become, it says in the Bible, slaves of the Pharaoh. You know, now that saved them. They were able to eat, but he had reduced them to serfs. And so how do you appeal to a guy like that that's got all the power? What do you say to a guy to keep him from killing you? Because you richly deserve to get killed at this point. These brothers have totally wronged him. I mean, justice would mean they're done. They're done. Now look what they did. I think these guys were brilliant. It, they said... So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you for their sin in treating you so cruelly. Now look at this. So we, the servants of the God, your father, beg you to forgive our sin. They, they said, look it, we're not going to appeal to you as our brother. Because, you know, families, eh, you know, sometimes they'll let you down, right? They said, we want to appeal to you as brothers in the Lord fellow servants of God. And I think what's really great about this is Joseph's brothers knew that family has limitations, but that spiritual union runs deeper than any other human relationship. Spiritual union, what the Bible calls fellowship. See, here's the deal. You know, like here's Eddie back here. Eddie's my brother in the Lord, right? Jesus lives in Eddie. But Jesus lives in me. And so when I see Eddie, even if Eddie annoys me, you know, the Jesus in me recognizes the Jesus in him. And I may not like Eddie all the time, but I love him because this is my brother and Jesus lives in him. It's just a natural thing. And this creates a relationship that's really deep. It's also eternal. It's also permanent. It's not going to go away. And that's, that's, a, that's such a cool thing, you know? This is something, a bond that we have in Christ. The Bible says, this is 1 John 3, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. Real believers actually love one another. That's the sign that you're a real believer. If you don't love fellow believers, something's wrong there. You know, now Joseph's brothers then appeal to him and they go like, look at, you may not like us, and we may have wronged you, but really we're brothers in the Lord, right? And look at how Joseph responds here. Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. And he followed through on that promise for the rest of his life and their lives. He treated them with mercy. He didn't give them justice. He gave them compassion. He gave them grace. Why? Because Joseph, his ability to love others sprang from his recognition that God loved him. And he's going like, you know, God has shown his love for me through what has happened here in Egypt. He's shown his love for the country. And he's going, how can I do less to you guys? You know, he has been compassionate. I have to be compassionate. That's our stance as believers, isn't it? We're not looking for justice from people who have wronged us. We're looking to give them grace, to give them grace. And that's what Joseph was able to do. You know, sometimes we do see how God has worked out even the worst things in our lives, just like Joseph did. Here's an example. See that guy in a picture there in the, in the inset? That's William Seward, who was the second most powerful man in the government when Abraham Lincoln was president. Uh, Seward was Secretary of State, and when they, John Wilkes Booth came to assassinate Lincoln that very night as part of the plot, a man named Lewis Powell came to kill the Secretary of State, um, William Seward. And um, Seward was in bed. Powell broke into his bedroom with the very knife that you see there. That's uh, in a museum in Schenectady, New York right now. And he took that knife and he stabbed Seward in the throat four times. And nothing happened. Why? Because Seward had had a carriage accident nine days before, thrown from his carriage, injured so badly, broke his jaw, and the way they treated it was they put a metal brace on his, you know, over his face, or over part of his face, and then down his neck onto his chest. So when Paul came up there and stabbed, you know, Seward's going, can't even feel it. Actually, I don't think he was doing that, but, it, you know, it was just like nothing was happening. Now, nine days before, Seward's going, why, God? Why did I have to get thrown out of the carriage, and I can't even go to the the theater with Lincoln or anything. I'm stuck in bed here with a stupid brace. And it was like, whoa, God meant it for good. You know, and sometimes we see that, don't we? You look back and you go like, oh man, I thought that was terrible, but God was good. Sometimes we can't figure it out. Like this is Teddy Bridgewater here. Uh, he's the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. And uh, this is a picture from the game against the Raiders, actually, just last Sunday. He's looking good, isn't he? But I tell you, four years ago, he wasn't. Uh, when he was with Minnesota, that's the ambulance that was hauling him away. He suffered this horrible knee injury on the field. It was the worst one they had ever seen. And this is what the doctor said. It's a horrific injury. You've torn every single thing in your knee, and it's hanging on by one ligament on one side like a hinge. His fellow players were throwing up on the field when they saw this injury. They hauled him to the hospital, and while he, Bridgewater said this, he said, I knew it was super serious because the doctor kept saying to the ambulance driver, drive faster, drive faster. You don't want that to happen, where somebody's saying to the ambulance driver to drive faster. Well, he went through this terrible rehab. It was just like, you know, months and months, years. But you know what? He said this. This is what he tweeted out. He's, he's a, a believer. He said, I never asked God why this happened to me. I've only told him thank you. 
A year later, he's showing me why this happened to me. Blessed. Isn't that cool? That's just absolutely cool. You know, in this, in this uh, chapter, ultimately, the trust isn't about, like, can we trust our boss? We know that. We can't. Um, can we trust our family? Eh, they're shady, too. But can we trust God? And that's a question Joseph, I'm sure, had. And, and ultimately, you and I have got that question, too. And see, here's, here's the, the thing. Joseph's faith enabled him to trust God with the past, not just the future. See, we always think of faith like this. We go like, can I trust God enough that if I do what he says, it'll work out for me? You know, will it work in the future? Can I trust God if I get this flu and something would, terrible would happen to me, I'd get super sick or I'd even die? And you know what? Um, that's faith, right? To trust God and go like, you know, I'm not afraid of this. I'm not going to panic and sweat like everybody else here. You know, God's got me in his hands. I trust him with my future. But I'm afraid that many of us in here trust him with our futures, but we haven't trusted him yet with the past. You know, and there might be a few of us here today that we've, we've gone through something that was so painful and something that was so frustrating, something that was so hurtful, that we're still going, why, God? Why? And we haven't come to the point where we've been able to say, thank you. Thank you just like, I don't know why, but thank you because you have promised that you're working out everything for my good because I love you. It's a hard thing, isn't it? To be able to say thank you for the past. Teddy Bridgewater did that before he knew that he would ever rehab, and I'm just in awe of that. You know, it's just amazing. He said this, wherever you lead me, God, I will go because I know at the end of the day you will never leave me nor forsake me. You know, Teddy Bridgewater, as a, a brother in the Lord, and you and I, we have an advantage over Joseph. See, Joseph, he just saw what was happening in Egypt, and he knew he could trust God with the past. But you and I have seen more than that, because we know that Jesus, you know, God himself, came in our stead, went to the cross, paid with his life for us, and rose from the dead just for you and me. And, and we've got this, this extra knowledge which is, overwhelms everything. And so we have good foundation for us to not only trust God with the future, but we can also trust him with the past, and we can finally say thank you for those things that have troubled us maybe for years. You know, I just want to close with this story here. Rob Long tells a story about a, uh, this friend of his. It was a woman. He's a Hollywood producer. And he went to this party, and here this woman is, and she's with this guy. And this guy is just, he's got deficiencies, okay? Um, he's like, uh, he's got this brain laugh. And he's one of these guys who always touches you all the time and pokes you when he's talking to you. And he's one of these guys who's like a wine expert, you know, like boring, and they're going on and on and on with stuff like that. And uh, he, he takes things, like you'll say, oh, that's, that's interesting. Well, uh, technically, that's not really interesting. Let me explain why. And you're going, oh, you know. And, 
And so he goes up to this woman, who's his friend, at the end of the night, and he goes like, get rid of this loser, you know? She goes, trust me, I will. He's just, I just got him for now until somebody better comes along. I don't like going to parties alone, okay? Trust me on this. So um, about a year later, he gets an invitation to a destination wedding in Bermuda, and it turns out she's marrying the guy. So he sends a text to her, question mark, that's the whole thing. So she gets back with him, and he goes, how can you marry this guy? She said, you know, he, he said, she, you know, he's got this brain. He, she goes, you know what? He found out I didn't like that, and he decided, okay, I'm, I'm just going to work on that and get rid of that. And, he, and he's just done all these things, you know, and he said, but what about the wine exit? She goes, you know what? I've learned to love that. That's just endearing to me now. He goes, well, it's great. Congratulations. He said, look at, uh, I promise you I will never tell him that you said he was a jerk. She goes like, you know what? Go ahead and tell him. She said, I told him that that's the way I felt. She said, we have no secrets. You know, I, I love him and he loves me and we have no secrets from each other. And Rob Long said this. He goes, in other words, she didn't need to blot anything from her memory. She wasn't erasing anything from the love story. That is the surest sign that this is a marriage that will last. You know what? In our marriage with God, the love story that you and I have with God, you know, we, we need to, like, get to the point where we're not erasing anything from the story. You know, God has been so good to us in the past, and he has told us, point blank, I'm working out everything for your good. And not only can we trust him with the futures that we've got, but we can trust him with the past, and we can learn to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I know you're good. I don't understand it all. I may still have questions, but I love you, and I say thank you. Let's pray. Lord, um, just, we just want to thank you for this, this guy named Joseph. I mean, he, he was flawed like you and me, but uh, not like you, but like, like us. And uh, he was, But uh, we just thank you for raising him up and for doing these wonderful things in his life. And Lord, give us the wisdom that he had and the compassion and the grace that he had and also that trust that he was able to trust you even for his past. And I also pray that you'd give us the wisdom of his brothers who uh, realized, hey, they couldn't put their trust in the things of this world too. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for making it possible that we, can, that we can trust you with what's happened in the past what's happened, what's going to happen in the future, and just with our very lives right now, here in the present, like Doug mentioned we, at the beginning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.